Lord, um, I just want to echo what Jason prayed. May your Holy Spirit move mightily in this place as we read your words and as I speak, Lord God. We want you to speak to us, teach us, guide us, strengthen us, inspire us. Uh, and I pray that you would get all the glory. Glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, during this time, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. So I have the pleasure this morning of kicking off a brand new sermon series. Um, so over the next four weeks, I'm going to be preaching through the book of Ruth. Now you know how much I love preaching through these short little Old Testament books. So I'm always excited when I get to kick off one of these sermon series. It's a wonderful story in the book of Ruth. You may be familiar with it, but it's a story of struggle, of how to worship God in the midst of suffering, of how to deal with grief and sorrow. It's a story of grace, the power of God to break into those struggles and move mightily and do something absolutely magnificent in the midst of darkness. It's a love story. It's a love story. And and we're going to think about Boaz and Ruth later on in this series. But it's also a love story, of course, about God's steadfast love for his people. And it's also a story of Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't in the story because it happened years before he was born. But Ruth is a direct ancestor of King David. And David, of course, is a direct ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. And I hope as we go through these four weeks, we're going to see, even in this little Old Testament story, the power of Jesus Christ. So to kick us off, I'm just going to read the first two verses of Ruth. Ruth 1, verses 1 to 2. Let me read it to you. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ethrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now I'm going to read the rest of chapter one in a moment. Um, But I just want to introduce the story of Ruth because the story of Ruth is set at a time of great evil in the land of Israel. There's a terrible famine throughout Israel and starving people throughout the country. Even in Bethlehem, there is no food. And if you know your Hebrew, you know that Bethlehem means house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. So even in the house of bread, there's no bread in this land, in this moment of terrible evil in Israel. So this is is great evil. How could God let this happen? This is supposed to be the promised land the Israelites were living in, a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet even in the house of bread in Bethlehem, nothing. Famine. Has the word of God failed? Might be a question that people were asking. Might be a question that we're asking. Did the word of God fail at the start of Ruth? Well, the answer is no. The answer is no. Because in Deuteronomy, especially chapter 28 and 32, before the Israelites went into the promised land, God warns the Israelites. Before they go into this new land that they were to possess, God says to the Israelites, if you obey me, if you worship me, you will flourish and thrive in the land. You will have everything you need and you will prosper and multiply. 
But God says, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen when you go into this land is that you will disobey me. And you will forsake me. And you will worship other gods. And in that day, in order to pull you back, in order to call you back to me, there will be famine in the land. There will be darkness and difficulty and despair in Israel. This is what God said before they even went into the promised land. And so now we come to the start of the book of Ruth. And there's this famine in the land. And we know that this has come because the people have forsaken God. They've stopped worshipping him, stopped obeying him, and they're worshipping idols. And if you read the book of Judges, the book Ruth starts in the days when the judges ruled. So it's set in the middle of the book of Judges. And if you read the book of Judges, you see over and over and over again, generation after generation of Israelites in the land reject the true God. Reject God and worship idols. As so many people in this country, in the United Kingdom, have done, they've rejected God. In favour of idols, seeking life and joy and satisfaction and security where it cannot be found. They're placing their hope in things that cannot offer eternal hope. They're worshipping and making the ultimate thing in life, created things rather than the creator, our God in heaven. God is the only source of life and joy and satisfaction and security. And so idolatry is whenever God isn't in that place, the ultimate place in your life. And so this is happening here in the United Kingdom, but this is what's going on at the beginning of Ruth. The people have forsaken God, they're worshipping idols, and as a consequence, famine has come into the land. Elimelech, this man introduced in verse 2, his name, by the way, means God is king. And so he should know that since God is king, that this famine has come from the hand of God. And so in this famine, in this moment of disaster and evil in the land of Israel, what should Elimelech have done? Well, sought God, turned back to God and said, I know that this famine has come because of what you said in Deuteronomy. Well, you warned us that this would happen. And so we need to return to you. So he, with his family, should have returned and worshipped God and called on his family to, to love and obey the commands of God and then called in Bethlehem and said, we need to return to God and this famine will be lifted from us. But instead, what does Elimelech do at the start of this story? He leaves Bethlehem. He leaves Judah. He leaves the land of Israel. He leaves the promised land. And he goes to Moab. There's a weird oddity in the Hebrew throughout Ruth that whenever Moab is mentioned, it says in my version, country of Moab. And that word for country is actually, bizarrely, the word field. And I don't know whether the writer was kind of mocking Moab as a place, but every time Moab's, like, it's basically saying Elimelech left the promised land, the house of bread, the land of Israel, and he went to the field of Moab. I think that's what the writer's kind of doing. It's just a stupid decision that Elimelech makes at the start of this story. Do you know, in suffering... When difficult and dark times come, the temptation is to run from God, just like Elimelech does in this story with his family. But the opening verses of Ruth should be a challenge for us to do the opposite. That when we go through suffering, when we go through dark times, when we go through difficulty, we need to seek God and trust him. Now, let me tell you something very, very important. If you are a Christian... You are a child of God and God never punishes you for sin. 
if you are a child of God. Do you know why he never punishes you for sin? It's because Christ, on the cross, bore the full weight of punishment for your sin. He carried upon himself everything that you would go through because of your sin. You see, he took your punishment. He was a substitute in your place. He bore your punishment. And so if you are a Christian, you are completely forgiven for everything you have done in the past and everything you will do in the future. So God never punishes you for your sin. But... God is a loving father. He never punishes you. But as our loving father, he does sometimes discipline us. He does sometimes teach us and grow us through times of suffering. He teaches us to be more Christ-like. So sometimes you will suffer as a result of sin in your life. You commit a sin and then you suffer. And I don't want you to think of that as God hating you and punishing you and coming against you. Rather, I want you to think of that as God as a loving father using your circumstances to grow in you and in your life. And so when suffering comes, if we go through famine in the land, I want us as Christians to respond like this. How is God teaching me? What is God doing in this situation? Why has this situation come upon me? Am I suffering because I've sinned? Is this God disciplining me for something that I've done in my life? That's a question that we should sometimes ask ourselves. Now often the answer is no. We don't don't believe in karma in this church, that when you do a bad thing, God always comes against you and brings suffering in your life. That's, That's not true. And so often we suffer and it's not directly related to sin. In our lives. And there's examples in the Gospels. Jesus heals a man, and the Pharisees say, Why was this man ill? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus says, No, no, no. It's neither of of those. He's ill so that the glory of God might be shown in his life. So it has nothing to do with this man's sin that he's gone through suffering. So what I'm saying is sometimes suffering can be related to sin, but often it's not. So we we shouldn't just assume that because we're suffering, it must be because we've sinned. But we also should be wise to ask ourselves the question, what am I going through? Why am I going through this? What is God teaching me? Now, I want to give you an example from my own life. A lesson that God is constantly teaching me is I find myself becoming weary and tired and frustrated with God because God in his word promises rest to those who come to Christ. And so when I'm weary and tired, I'm like, come on, God, why am I so tired? And, and what I've come to realise probably since we've church planted, so the last four years of my life, is God is teaching me to rely on his strength, to not try and do everything in my own strength, but to trust in him. And, and so actually when I'm weary and tired, it often is because I've not been resting in the presence of God. So it is a consequence of my sin. I'm being called to return to the Lord. So I want to encourage you from these first two verses that God is a loving father and he does discipline us. And he always has purposes in our suffering. And sometimes we might not ever understand those purposes. But I want to encourage us, even when we don't understand, to seek him in those moments. Don't run away to the field of Moab, but come and return to the Lord with worship and praise and obedience. Now, Elimelech doesn't do that. And the whole story of Ruth flows from this decision to take his family away from Bethlehem and into the field of Moab. So let me read to you the rest of Ruth chapter 1. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Kilian died, 
so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country or field of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with, with the dead, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Lord Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth chapter 1 is, of course, a miserable chapter of scripture. It's a chapter full of sin. The family not only sins by leaving and going to Moab, but also the sons marry Moabite women, which probably wasn't lawful according to the Old Testament. But it really is a miserable chapter, an awful chapter of scripture. Famine death and misery. I want to talk about two things this morning. I want to talk about the misery of Naomi in that chapter. And then secondly, I want to talk about the conversion of Ruth in that chapter. So let's think first about the misery of Naomi throughout Ruth chapter one. In many ways, the book of Ruth should probably be called Naomi rather than Ruth. It starts with Naomi and it ends with Naomi. Ruth's kind of in the middle, but the start and the end are about this lady. And in many ways, it's a redemption story for Naomi. She starts in this miserable place in chapter one and hope and joy come into the midst of complete sorrow and bitterness in chapters two, three and four. So it gets better, this story of Ruth. And I will preach on the joy and the hope in weeks to come. 
but it would be wrong of us not to reflect on chapter one and the pain and the sorrow in this chapter. Because as Christians, we will go through times of intense sorrow and sadness. Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, knew what it was to cry and to weep. This amazing story in John chapter 11 where his friend Lazarus dies and all the people are mourning his death. And even though Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead because of the mourning that's going on around him, because of the pain of death that's come upon the land, there's this verse where Jesus just weeps with the people. Jesus cries. And if our Lord and Saviour and perfect example of humanity cries, then so we, his disciples, will also know sorrow in our lives. We will also know what it is to weep. And Naomi, in this story, experienced this sorrow on a very, very deep level. Her husband dies. And then her sons die. And the text emphasises her bitterness and despair in this chapter. Have a look at verse 3. It says, Elimelech dies and she was left with her two sons. She was left. And then have a look at verse 5. Marlon and Killian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She just feel the weight of sorrow in those verses. Firstly, she's lost her husband and she's left, but she still has her two sons in verse 3. But then in verse 5, she's left without sons or husband. The phrase, she was left, is repeated to draw us into her intense sorrow. And so that's what this chapter is really about. It's about deep loss and intense loneliness for Naomi. Although she returns to Bethlehem, she returns broken and hopeless. And in her mind, she is completely empty-handed. She has nothing left in life. That's kind of how she feels in this chapter. Have a look at verse 11. Ruth and Orpah are trying to come back with her. We want to stay with you. And Naomi basically saying, I have nothing left to offer you at all. I'm completely empty-handed. She says, turn back, leave me alone. I don't have any sons. I don't have a husband. I don't have any sons left. I don't have any sons in my womb. I'm too old to have a new husband. And even if I say I have hope, she says in verse 12. What does that mean? Even if I say I have hope, it means she doesn't have hope. That's what's going on in her. She doesn't have hope in verse 12. Even if I say I have hope, you're not going to wait for me to get married and have sons and for them to grow into adults so you can marry them. Naomi's referring to an important Jewish custom to protect women and ensure they were looked after and to preserve family names within the Jewish people. If a man died, then his brother or a close relative would marry the widow and then she would have the protection and the provision that she needed and she could bear children in the name of her deceased husband. So the family name would continue. This was a Jewish idea that they lived out in their nation and so Naomi's saying that can't happen I don't have I don't have any sons I'm not going to have sons you're not going to wait for them to grow up so this custom that was designed to provide for you will not work in this case and so Naomi's saying I have nothing I have nothing to offer you now that's actually not strictly true in this moment 
We find out later in the story that she has at least two close relatives who are still in Bethlehem in Israel. A man, Boaz, who's become a hero in the story, and another possible husband for Ruth or Orpah. So she does have close relatives in the land of Israel, but in this moment she's saying, I have nothing, I have nothing to give to you. Now, of course, she's grieving. She's in intense love. So she's not thinking straight. But perhaps if she was thinking straight, she would say, OK, maybe you can come. Maybe there are relatives where we can look after you. But in her loss, she feels like she has nothing at all. And in her grief, not only does she feel she has nothing at all, but she is driving Orpah and Ruth away in this story, isn't she? Don't come with me. Leave me alone. Go back to your home. Don't come with me. These two women who are saying, we want to come with you. And she's saying, no, leave me alone. It's only the stubbornness of Ruth, really, in chapter one, that keeps her from being completely alone in the story. And I think there's something to be said in praise of Ruth's stubbornness to care for this woman. And often when people are going through grief, they need people who aren't providing solutions, but saying, I'm just, I'm just going to be with you. I'm just, I'll just be with you. If you want company, I'm going to be with you. And I think the stubbornness of Ruth has much to be commended in this story. And as, as I reflect on the importance of Naomi not being alone through this story, I can't help but think about the beauty and importance of the church. Romans 12, verse 15, speaks of the church and says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And 1 Corinthians 12 verse 26 says this of the church. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. So just as Ruth is, is trying to be with Naomi in this story, that's how we should be as the church. Coming alongside people when they're suffering. Drawing alongside them. Rejoicing with them when they've got things to celebrate. And mourning with them when they go through suffering. One of the saddest things about COVID in this country is that we haven't really experienced this much in this church, but I know across other churches in this country, Christians going through this season of trial and difficulty and mourning didn't engage with church online and are now not returning to church buildings. That's so sad. There are Christians who, during this season, they, they drifted away, they gave up on church, and they're not returning. And, and I just think, what happens when they go through a season of mourning? They need the church. The church is just such a glorious place to go through different highs and lows of life. And so if you are watching online, you haven't got re-engaged with church since COVID, I just want to encourage you, please do. It will be to your benefit. One thing is deeply obvious in Naomi's heart in this chapter. It's that her relationship and perception of God is really deeply impacted by the grief that she goes through. I wonder whether you notice in verse 8, Naomi says to Orpah and Ruth, May the Lord deal kindly with you. And the word she uses for kindly is the word hesed, which is sometimes translated loving kindness in the Old Testament. And it's often referred to the love of God for his covenant people. And so she, she's saying to Ruth and Orpah, these Moabites, may the Lord show his kindness and steadfast love to you in, a, in abundance. So Naomi, in her head still has some consciousness of the love of God. And she's talking to her two daughters-in-law and saying, God, be kind to you. God, show loving and steadfast love to you. In her mind, God is still a God of steadfast love. 
But in her grief, she seems unable to see or feel that love in her own life. She's praying for it for her daughter-in-law, but on several occasions in this chapter, she says things that just imply that she thinks that God's love is no longer for her anymore. That's how she feels. Look at verse 13. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That word against me just rattles me when I read it. This is how she's perceiving what's happened, that God's hand has gone out against her. He is her enemy and her opposition. In verses 20 to 21, she says some very similar things. Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. Well, she left during a famine, so she probably didn't leave full. But anyway, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Lord Almighty has brought calamity upon me? The Lord is against me. He has brought calamity upon me. This is how she's sensing the whole situation. And on the one hand, there is some good theology in what she's saying. She understands that God is king. She knows that her husband's name was Elimelech and that he is sovereign and king overall. Maybe the book shouldn't be called Ruth or Naomi, but it should be called Elimelech because one of the key messages of the book of Ruth is that God is king through calamity and in the hope and goodness of life. God is always king. And so she knows that God is sovereign and knows that everything that has befallen her has in some sense come from God, has come under God's mighty hand. But in so many other ways, her theology is rubbish, awful, because in her understanding of God's sovereignty, she's completely lost the heart of God. She assumes that God is against her, that God is an enemy and an opponent. In her grief, she knows about the steadfast love of God in her head, but she refuses to believe in that steadfast love for her. God is not steadfastly loving towards me. He is against me. He is bitter towards me. I wonder whether you've ever been in that place in your own grief and suffering. You know that God is sovereign and God is king. And yet you're going through suffering. So you start to assume that God is bad or God is against you. God might be for other people, but against he is against you and he's bitter towards you. Now, that is never, ever true. Never, ever true. When you struggle with grief, whether it's fresh grief, recent grief, or it's old grief that's resurfacing in your heart and mind, as it often does, don't run to the field, but seek God. Don't push people away, but stick to the church and surround yourself by people who love Jesus. But above all, Remember the Hesed, steadfast love of God and believe that it's for you. You know, God the Father loves you so much. He gave his son upon the cross to die for you. Never doubt his steadfast love for you. Keep pressing into the cross, the place where Jesus showed above all that he loves you and he always will. Naomi comes to this place of deep bitterness because she fails to believe 
that God is loving her. But actually God is loving her. God is leading her to a place of, as we'll see in chapters 2, 3 and 4, where he's going to do an astounding thing in her life. God is not against her. God is not her opponent. But God is working and calling her back to him, even through the darkness and the difficulty and the grief and sadness that happens in chapter 1. Remember the hesed, the steadfast love of God always, especially in those dark and difficult moments. There'll be a time of prayer for you if you're going through grief at the moment where I invite you to respond. But I also want to think in this chapter about Ruth's conversion. Throughout this chapter of scripture, there's little glimpses of hope and little glimpses of God's grace that is to come later in the story. The first is in verse six. The Lord visits his people in Israel. They're in the field of Moab and they hear that God has come to Israel and brought food with him. And it's not as though the people of Israel deserve it, but it's God in his grace saying, I'm going to relent of the famine. I'm going to return to my people. I'm going to visit them. My presence will be with them once more. And with my presence comes food so that people have everything to eat. God draws near again. And that's our story as Christians, isn't it? That we have neglected God. We have rebelled against him. Emeru's prayer earlier was the fact that we don't deserve the love of God. We had turned our back on him. We have disobeyed him. And yet God in his mercy somehow visited us with power in the Holy Spirit and turned us around and brought us to a place of faith in Christ. If you're a Christian, you have a testimony of God visiting you and moving in your life even though you didn't deserve it. Well, that's what's happening in the nation of Israel. There's famine in the land, but God says, I'm going to move in grace now. I'm going to come back and show my love by bringing food into this place. So that's in verse 6. But most remarkably in this story, God shows his grace through the conversion of Ruth. Isn't it? Just think about this for a moment. Isn't it amazing? This is a story about famine. This is a story about the sin of Elimelech in taking his family out of the promised land. This is a story about the sin of Marlon and Kilion in marrying women who they probably shouldn't have married according to the law of God. So it's sin and disaster. And God uses all of this sin in order to save a lady called Ruth. And bring her into the family of God. That is a reoccurring theme in the Old Testament, by the way. Think of Jonah, right? Jonah is told to go to Nineveh and to preach the gospel to the Ninevites. And instead, Jonah turns around and goes and runs away and gets on a boat to disappear and get as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can. And you're thinking, Jonah, what are you doing? You're disobeying God. And yet God uses Jonah on the boat so that all the, the all the men on the boat worship and pray to God. And so they have an encounter with Yahweh on the boat because of the disobedience of Jonah. It's amazing how God, in his grace and power, even uses when we mess up and when we sin to spread the gospel and do great and amazing things. Now, that isn't an invitation for us to go out and sin and do whatever we want, but it takes a lot of weight off our shoulders, doesn't it? That God can even use us as we sin for his glory. That's how powerful and awesome he is. Verse 16 is this wonderful conversion moment for Ruth, this wonderful repentance moment. Ruth says, I will not leave you, Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. And in verse 17, she even uses God's name, Yahweh, to say, I'm calling, he's the one I'm calling to now. Yahweh is my God. He's my God now. In this moment, Ruth gives up what is familiar. She gives up the Moabite land in which she's lived her whole life. She perhaps gives up Moabite family. She gives up Moabite gods. 
to remain faithful to Naomi and faithful to Yahweh. This is a beautiful picture of what conversion really looks like in the life of a Christian. We turn away from sin. We turn away from what's been familiar in our past. We turn away from getting drunk. We turn away from greedy, money-driven lives. We turn away from sex outside of marriage. We turn away from finding our security in ungodly relationships. We turn away from self-reliance and believing that we are good people. We, we can determine what's right and wrong. We are the moral arbiters of our lives. We turn away from that. And we turn to Yahweh. We turn to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And we say, he is my God. I will worship him. I will follow him. I'm turning away from my old life. And now I'm following the true God. He determines what is right and wrong. He determines the direction I go. And he has saved me through his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So that everything I did in my past is forgiven. And I come and enter into the presence of God blameless through the cross. That's repentance. Repentance means turning. It's what Ruth does. She turns from her mobile life to go with Naomi. And we turn from our sinful lives to follow Jesus and believe in God. Christians, in one sense, repent once in a moment of conversion where they first enter into relationship with God for the very first time. But actually Christians go on repenting. Daily, hourly even. We turn back to Jesus in mercy. We mess up and God in his grace uses it because that's what he does. But we mess up, we sin and we turn back to God and ask for forgiveness. We turn away from prayerlessness perhaps. You know, we have a, a day where we don't pray to God and we come to the end of the day and we go, what have I done? What have I done? Why have I neglected God? I'm going to turn back and we enter into a time of prayer. We repent over and over again. Or we confess a particular sin. We say, Lord, I I told a lie today. I'm really sorry. I'm going to turn to Jesus and receive mercy. For he died for me on the cross that I might be forgiven. So we we repent once in our conversion. But Christians go on repenting day after day, hour after hour. There's a phrase, someone much cleverer than I um, said it for the first time. They say, birds fly, fish swim, Christians repent. Um, Are you going through your life repenting regularly, turning back to Jesus, turning back to God? I want to ask you to examine yourself this morning. Do you need to repent? Do you need to turn to God again? Do you need to turn from something you've done wrong? If you're a non-Christian, I'm going to ask you to repent. There is forgiveness and mercy and life everlasting with Christ. Turn from your old life and follow Jesus. You will not regret that decision. It will be the best decision you ever made. But if you are already a Christian, is there a sin today or this week that you need to turn from? Maybe not a particular thing, but a a general dishonour or neglect of the worship and love of God in your life. Do you need to turn away in your heart from that and turn to Christ, knowing that his arms are wide open to receive you? He loves to receive people turning back to him. Now what's particularly interesting about Ruth's experience is the way Naomi keeps trying to persuade her to turn back in the story. Ruth's going, I want to come with you. And Naomi's going, no, go back to Moab, go back to the field. And so often that's a very Christian experience, isn't it? 
following Christ, trying to serve and worship him. But voices, perhaps non-Christian voices, say Christianity is laughable. Why are you going in that direction? Turn back, go a different way. Or maybe a voice saying, don't be so zealous. Don't be so passionate. You know, be, be religious if that's what you want to do, but keep it private. Keep it to yourself. Don't show your love for God to others. Turn back from your zeal and your passion. Or maybe don't be so ambitious. Maybe you set out and you say, I've got the Holy Spirit living inside me. I'm going to love people. I'm going to care for people. I'm going to really go for it. I'm going to set up a charitable organisation or I'm just going to take in homeless people and go and buy them lunch. I'm going to really go for it. And people are saying, don't be so ambitious. Come on, turn back from that road. Just just do the quiet thing where you, you don't do anything really radical. Just turn back. I wonder whether you know that temptation to turn back from following Christ. And I sensed as I wrote this sermon that there might be one person in here who was particularly zealous in using a gift. Maybe the gift of prophecy. You, you know that God has spoken to you and you've, you've used that gift to bless others in the church. And you've been zealous for it. But there's been a voice, outside voices ringing your ears saying, turn back, stop being so zealous and using your gift. And if that's you, I want to say, no. Be like Ruth, be stubborn like Ruth and keep going after it. Keep pursuing God, keep serving him faithfully. And I do wonder whether there was someone in this room who once had a real passion for serving the poor and the needy. They had this idea, this is what they were going to do to change the town that they lived in on the street. And they really wanted to go for it. And then the things of life just choked that idea and it never really happened. And you stepped back and you turned around from really going for it radically. If that's you, I just want to encourage you. We sung that song, um, build my life and one of the lines is send me out to love I can't remember the words but send me out to love people like you have loved me and if, so if, you, if you've turned back from really going for it ambitiously to love people I want to encourage you I'd love to hear that idea and we'd, as a church we'd love to see what we can do to support you to make that happen don't turn back keep passionately following Christ in your life because that's what Ruth does Ruth is stubborn isn't she a good stubbornness stubbornness is often a bad quality but here it's a good stubbornness I'm going with you. Your God will be my God. And in a sense, all the joy and hope that comes in chapters 2, 3 and 4 stems from this choice that Ruth makes. I'm not turning around. I'm not going back to my old life. I'm coming with you because I love you and you need me right now in your life, she's saying to Naomi. And also because your God is my God. And I'll be buried with you and I'm going to worship your God for the rest of my life. Nothing but death is going to separate me from Yahweh and from serving you. And the story that we'll read over the next few weeks turns into something truly glorious and beautiful because of this lady, Ruth, who makes this decision. So maybe it's entirely appropriate that the book is called Ruth because it hinges on this moment where she says, I will not turn back. I will follow Christ. She says, Yahweh is my God. No turning back. And I want to strongly urge myself and every single one of you to have that same heart and attitude. Yahweh is my God. Jesus is my saviour. I will follow him all my days. No turning back. Even when I look like a zealot. Even when I look like an idiot. Even when I do something that is humanly impossible, I'm going to trust God and keep following him day after day. I want to lead us in some prayerful responses to what I've preached from Ruth. So I'm going to invite you to shut your eyes 
and I'm going I'm, I'm to pray three prayers for three groups of people. And I'm going to ask you to respond if you feel like you're in one of these groups just by raising your hand. Um, no one's watching, it's just you and God, but that action just says, yes, God, I'm responding to you. So firstly, I want to pray for people who feel like they're grieving, facing sorrow in their life, whether it's fresh grief, fresh pain, or whether it's something that's just resurfaced recently. Um, so if you want to respond to that and, and get prayer, then I just encourage you just to raise your hand and say, yeah, God, that's me. I'm responding to this prayer. And let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are your children and that you love us and that your steadfast love will never leave or forsake us. Even when it feels like your hand is against us because of pain and sorrow and struggle, you are still there moving mightily and gloriously. So I pray for anyone grieving right now, Lord God. May they know your love deeper than ever before in a powerful and amazing way. And so though they weep, though they grieve rightly, as is right to do, they also never feel like you have dealt bitterly with them, but know your faithfulness. Lord, you are such a faithful God. You are such a loving God. It's who you are. You are love. And we experience that day by day. So I pray for anyone experiencing grief. May they know your steadfast love wonderfully in their hearts and lives. Secondly, I want to pray for um, you if you're not a Christian. And you would like to turn to Jesus for the very first time this morning. You want to be like Ruth and say, Yahweh is my God. This God of steadfast love. This God who saved us in Christ upon the cross. I want to follow him. So if that's you, I want to invite you to raise your hand and respond to this prayer. I'll lead you in prayer and just say amen at the end if you agree. It doesn't have to be out loud, but in your heart. Lord, I want to turn and follow you. I've heard that you are good and you are loving and you are powerful. And I've heard that there is salvation in Jesus Christ who died for me upon the cross that I might be forgiven for the things I've done wrong and that he is a loving king and faithful ruler. So I want to say, Lord, I want to follow you the rest of my days. I want to turn from my old life and follow you, Jesus. Would you come and make that happen in my heart for your glory, Lord? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And thirdly, I want to speak to you if you're a Christian and you feel like you turned back. You were following Christ and there was something that God had given for you to do and then you turned away from doing it and you gave up. Maybe you're one of those two people who are speaking to a particular gift that God had given you that you stopped using or a particular passion or project to love people that you gave up on. And if that's you, I want to invite you to raise your hand and I'll pray for you as well. Lord God, we thank you for the joy and privilege it is to follow Christ. And we are sorry that sometimes we're going for it, red hot, zealously passionate for you. And then we, for whatever reason, we heed the voices that tell us to turn back and we turn away. Not that we give up following you completely, but we turn away from doing what you've really called us to do. Lord, we're sorry, forgive us. And now stir within us that passion that we once held. Stir within us that gift that we once used. Stir in us again that we might follow you and stubbornly say, I am not turning back. Yahweh is my God and will be until the day I die. I pray we would live that out hour by hour, day by day, repenting and turning to Christ over and over again whenever we falter, knowing that you in love receive us with grace and mercy. 
I pray we would be a people of repenting as a church and a people who are um, stubborn in following Jesus, even through difficulties and dark situations. Help us in that by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you so much for being here this morning. This is the end of our service. We'll have tea and coffee and, and please do join us for that. If you want to continue responding to anything I've said or any of the words that were brought earlier in the service, then feel free to grab me at the front or grab someone else who you recognise and know and would love to pray with. We'd love this to be a place of prayer, but also a, pre- a place of conversation and catching up with one another over tea and coffee. So thank you for being here. Have a great week and God bless.